there are a few moments in your life that you are in more immediate fear, anxiety, or severe sense of loss than when a loved one leaves you or when a loved one dies. For those who have left their house for college life, it's really difficult for both the university-bound as well as their parents or their friends. Or those with a spouse or parents in the military leaving for some unidentified mission for some unknown period of time can be immensely stressful and fear you, fill you with fear. Maybe you've lost your parents. Maybe you've had a period of time of, of immense stress around leaving or losing your kids or your family or friends to death or a constant sense of loss and nostalgia, they, they overwhelm you. As a result of divorce, their world caves in. Your parents are divorced, and your world caves in. When part of your family or you, you moved out of the area, when friends or you leave for college or various parts of the world, when you've grown up with a very tight-knit group of friends and move to a new area with no connections, anxiety tends to be your companion because friends aren't. Everyone's dealt with one or multiple of these events. I've dealt with every single one of them. And you've probably got more. I just don't have the time to line out. You can think of these. So go in back when Jesus clues the disciples and says, it's better that I leave. It's better that I die. It's better that you no longer have access to me. You can imagine what they feel. How? I've known you for three years. I followed you everywhere. I've left my parents. I've left my friends. And it's better. You can, you can almost seem insensitive. How is this possible? Where is he going that we can't? Where is he going that disciples can't? And to twist the knife further into your soul, it's one thing to say, hey, I'm going. He says, it's better for you. Because we've probably heard this before. Like, how can it be different from Jesus' lips that it's better for us that he's absent? Because this world is already full of anxiety, depression, fear, loss, and so much more. And then to not have your Savior with you physically, like how can this world ever get worse? The one person who I thought was going to lead me says it's better if I go. Uh, I'm going to say it's the only way to truly comfort you. That's what the Gospel of John says. This is what John says. what Jesus says. It really is better. This is really better to comfort us through all the same feelings. The only way we can get through is if he is absent and then comes again. Because he's never going to leave you. He gives you the Holy Spirit, which is your connection with him and the promises of Christ. And in John 13, this is earlier, you heard 
of the indwelling of Judas with the devil. And now you get really the opposite. You get the indwelling of you with the spirits. The devil in Judas in John 13 and the spirit in the believer in John 14. And this week we'll hear of that and those who are comforted with and by Christ. And that is you. And we're going to see this in three points. First is a failure of self-salvation. This is chapter 13, verses 31 to 38. If you notice what Peter says, Lord, I will lay my life down. I think I know better. I think I can save myself. I think I can save you. That's what we think so often. And second point is way of true salvation, verses 1 through 14 of chapter 14. And prompted by a question, Jesus describes it, no, Peter, your way is not the way. My way is the way. It's not even the way. I am the way. Not just towards the way. I am that way of salvation. And lastly is comfort of this salvation. To complete this salvation, and this goes against everything we want to believe, Jesus has to go. Jesus has to die and raise and ascend to heaven for this to be complete. And that's good news. So may this be clear throughout. You have a witness and comfort of the Spirit with you right now on account of the obedience of Christ to the law of God. Spirit comes down because Christ has ascended. Can't come down if he doesn't. So we begin in point one. In chapter 13, verse 31, failure of self-salvation. If you were to write a first-hand witness account of the most famous person in history, how would you describe their glory? Well, the best way we can think of somebody who's military, a president, somebody who's conquered, and say they got it by killing somebody, by, by conquering lands and saying, I established my glory. That's how I get it. Here John describes Jesus' glory from Jesus' lips. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If you remember what happens earlier in chapter 13, where does that come from? His betrayal. That's how I'm glorified. Through betrayal. Because that leads me to the cross, which leads me to my ascension. This leads to my resurrection. You think glory from betrayal? Really? Glory from betrayal of your close friend who accompanied your entire ministry. Glory that upends the desire of the devil. So he continues, Jesus does in verses 33 to 34, because this glory doesn't manifest in earthly victory, at least immediately, at least in his first coming. But his glory manifests in his absence. That's where it's made known. Yet a little while, I am with you. Where I am going, you cannot come. Wherever Jesus has gone for the past three years, that's where his disciples went. They, like, they were his train of his robe. Wherever he went, they went. So when he says this, you can imagine, like, what are you talking about? Why can't I go? 
We heard this from John 10, the shepherd. How can a shepherd leave his flock? How can somebody who's, who shepherd this flock say, don't worry, it's better if I leave you in the pen alone? We'd be a little shocked. Not only that, but he gives another commandment. Notice what he says. A new commandment. What should that, what should that fill you with? That should immediately kind of fill you with fear. What are you talking about? A new commandment? I thought 10 was enough. I can't even do that 10. You give me another one? What are you talking about? But this commandment is not to condemn you. And it's not even to point out your inadequacy. But you can say a fancy word. It's, it's refracted. It's, it's changed through Christ. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's the new commandments. As I have loved you, now you have this love to go love one another. It's not I expect something from you that you cannot do. I have loved you, therefore you can go love. That's my commandments. Commandment I've done, and now you can do. But how? The great commandment was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And this kind of feels like that second part. One of the confessional standards of the Reformed Church, you might know, the Heidelberg Catechism, near and dear to my heart, and I know near and dear to many of your hearts, it describes just how poorly you do at keeping these commandments. It asks, are you able to keep these laws? It says, no, I am by nature prone to hate God and my neighbor. We say, new commandments? Are you sure? Are you just trying to make me feel worse about myself, that I can't love my neighbor, that I can't love as you love me? But isn't it describe how you do this coming to chapter 14? But it continues in chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you're anything like me, I bet that verse hurts to hear. That's not what you want Jesus to say to you. If you love me, or by this the world will know that you love me, by winning theological battles with your friends. That's how the world knows you. That's how the world knows me. Or, by this the world will know that you love me, you want him to say by cutting off my friends when they disagree with me, because they're wrong. We'd rather them say, we'd rather Jesus say that. Or, by this the world will know that you love me by being known as that guy or that girl who is against everything I believe and tells me. That's, that's, that's kind of how my heart wants this verse to go. And I bet that's somehow you want this verse to go too, even if we won't admit it. I say this not because these aren't at times necessary. It is necessary to tell somebody what you believe. It is necessary to disagree. But he says, we're certainly not known for our love for one another, but like I said, I bet you buck against this. To love is to proclaim the truth no matter how difficult that truth is to hear. 
we'll, we'll be confident in ourselves. Like, oh, that was good. They hate me. Therefore, I did good. Or to, to love is to proclaim God's just wrath against sin. And it's true. Very true. But that's not what Jesus said. We look at love and we'll import modern notions of love on this and say, I don't want to love like that. And us reformed people, as generally known, that's generally how we're viewed. Not by love, but by being against something. So let this be instructive for us. This is, this is biblical truth. It's hard. I think this is harder than a lot of other stuff that we'll read. And it's a model for those outside the church. And so Peter's confused, as we're probably confused. And it seems to be the normal amongst disciples and nearly everyone else who dialogues with Jesus. Like, I have no idea what you're saying to me. This goes against everything that I think, everything I believe. But look at what Peter says in verse 37. Lord, why can I not follow you now? He's t- what, what is he asking? Why can't I follow you to the cross? Why can't I be like a co-crucified person? Why can't I do your work? I will lay my life down for you. That's what Peter says. He's, he's basically saying, Lord, I know what's better for you. Follow me. I'll lay my life down for you. I can help you save the world. Like, let's be buddies. Let's go to the cross together. I think I can help you. What do you think, Jesus? I think I know what society needs. Let me take care of this. Let me die for you. Let me lay my life down for you. This is the all-sovereign I. I got this. I know better. Peter thinks he can do it. He's got Jesus' best interest in heart because Jesus clearly doesn't want what Peter wants. He's like, I want it, and I want it now. I'll lay my life down for it. Jesus, your mission is, is, is too different than what I want. And this is, you can imagine, like, Peter's like, I'm brave. I can do this. He's got an idea of where his ministry wants to go. He wants to be the central character. And again, I think this is us. We want to be the central character. Lord, I got your best interest in heart. Let me see what I can do. Let me show you what I can do. Does it sound familiar? Jesus corrects him softly but ever so firmly. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't slap him and say, Peter, shape up. I'm going to die for you. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will crow, will not crow, until you have fulfilled all righteousness. It says, until you've denied me. You think you're going to die for me? 
not even going to be neutral. You're going to deny me. You're going to do nothing. Not only will you not lay your life down for me, Peter, but you will deny me. Not once, which is bad enough, but three times. It's going to dig into you. Well, I, I really didn't do it. So much for Peter's self-salvation project and, and really so much for yours and mine. We, got, we can talk a good game. But then it's Jesus. It's all Jesus. If it's not Peter's way or for salvation or glory, it's neither yours or mine. So what is it? Brings us to point two, the way of true salvation. You can imagine, imagine how Peter responds to this. Because it kind of cuts out his response. It just goes right into the next discourse. This is truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. You can, you can imagine Peter's like, scoff, like, no. That's not me. I would never do that. I will lay my life down for you. And Jesus says, I will lay my life down. I've told you this. I will lay my life down. And he does so to ascend to the heavenly temple to prepare your room. That's why he has to lay his life down. He has to prepare it for you. He has prepared it for you. He must if he's going to prepare you a place. Because laying down his life by being portrayed taking upon himself your sin, dying for your unrighteousness, and rising for your justification, being made right in God's eye, is done so that he might take you with him. He's not saying, you got it all wrong, stay behind me. He's saying, I'll I'll do it for you. Then I'll bring you with me. And I'll sit you with me. And we'll be in the same house. His death and resurrection must be done by him and him alone. Peter tries to help him by coming with him and saying, I will lay my life down too. I will sacrifice for the sins of those I like. And so in verse 5, Thomas, Thomas is just confused. He's like, I don't know what's going on. I have no idea what you're saying. We followed you these last three years. Why can't we follow you now? Because when a disciple has a rabbi, essentially they follow him for life or until they, quote-unquote, graduate from rabbi school. And then he tells them, hey, now you're a rabbi. People will follow you. But to stop at three years would have been kind of unthinkable. So Jesus responds in one of the most famous verses, and you probably know this by heart. I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, which is a slap on Peter. It's not your way. It's my way. The way is big in the Old Testament. The way the Israelites traveled out of bondage to the mountain to receive from God, followed God on the way, and followed God in the way. The way to the promised land, the way to the land flowing with milk and honey, the way so often described by the prophets as fullness of salvation. Jesus is like, I'm that way. That's me. This is not your project. This is me. You're in me. 
You're in my way. That's the way. It's not just following Jesus. It's being in Jesus. Because he's the way. He's not just an example to follow. He's the way of salvation. He doesn't just lead you to salvation as if it's detached from him. He's saying, I am that salvation. And you follow me. As God the Father spoke through the agency of the Son in the Old Testament, so now the Son speaks by the authority of the Father in the New Testament. And so look at Philip's response. Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. What does that mean, Philip, means? You're not the Father. Show us him. He doesn't believe. No idea. He's just a kind of a good rabbi to Philip. And so Jesus' response makes a bit more sense now. Have you seen all that I've done to show who I am? Have you heard the very words that I've spoken, equating myself with God so much so to where the Pharisees want to stone me for making myself like God? By being labeled a blasphemer because people correctly saw that I equated myself with God, which is who I am. I am God in the flesh. I think there's an example we can take from this. It's easy for us to have less less patience than Jesus does. It's easy for us with a, a friend who's a little theologically further behind us and us to have tiny little patience for them. And saying, if you don't get it immediately, I can't have you as friend. I'm going to get really angry at you. How could you possibly not believe this? How long have you been in my Bible study? How long have we been in the same Facebook group? How long have we been commenting on your videos? And you still don't get it. But Jesus continues to explain his work, which Philip doesn't get until the resurrection. I think it's, I think it's helpful for us, too. We can, if Jesus can be patient, being the perfect teacher, I think we could be a little more patient. And a confusing line from Jesus comes in verse 12. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And notice what he says next. And greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. And, and your question might be, how? Crucified, died, buried, raised on the third day. How can I possibly do anything greater than this? How can anyone possibly do anything greater than this? I think, in a sense, because in a few verses we'll hear about the power of the spirits, in, in a sense, this is like more work. This is, we get to see changed hearts. And really during his ministry, how many hearts does Jesus see changed? Not many. 
He's, he's really like the Isaiah prophets. He preaches, and there's really no fruit. Paul preaches, and there's fruit everywhere. I think that's the sense. It's not better stuff that Jesus did. It's like, you're going to see the fruit of what Jesus has done. This is, this is, the, this is the greater works. And so we ask for empowered witness to do this. How do we do this? And we'll be granted it. So what does this look like? What do these works look like? What does it look like to be empowered by whoever Jesus is talking about? How will we accomplish this? And then who is our comfort in affliction? This brings us to our last point. Comfort in this salvation. This new commandment in verse 15, we already heard about this a few verses earlier. It's on added commandments. This isn't meant to say you're condemned even further than Ten Commandments. It's not more to-dos. This is has been done, now do. It's the condemnation of the law fulfilled that we might gratefully obey. That's what this new commandment is. The Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father, or the Son, if we take the western side of the Nicene Creed, is the comforter, the helper, the advocate. It's, it's like the ancient Roman, it's an ancient Greco-Roman way of saying, he's your lawyer. He's your lawyer at the bar of justice. He's the one telling the judge he's innocent. She's innocent. Not only that, he's righteous. She's righteous. It's like a reminder for the judge. Not as if this judge has to be reminded, but that's a picture we're given. He, he tells that you've been blood-bought. This helper, this comforter, this advocate says that your condemnation has been satisfied. That the Father has pleasure in you. The judge is not judging you in your sin. He's giving you a verdict of not guilty. Giving you a verdict of perfectly righteous. That you're clean and perfect. That you're adopted. That sorrow doesn't have the last word. That unending joy is your future. That's, that's the advocate. That's the comforter. He comforts you with this. And that's what's lined out in verses 17 through 20. These are the benefits of this comforter. And so the Spirit, He is what empowers your obedience. Out of the Spirit, we can't render this obedience. We can't do anything. He's the assurance of the Father's love for you. And He's the power to love as Jesus loved. When your love fails, and it's going to fail, if it hasn't already in many multiple ways, it's covered. And it's covered by the love of the triune God, which through the Spirit you actually have access to. It's not the triune God telling you to do things and say you can't do it. It's, I am empowering you with my love to love others. And so Judas, and I'll be real, doesn't it kind of suck to have Judas' name? 
If you're not Judas Iscariot, you have to be like, I'm Judas, but not that Judas. I'm the other Judas. I love that. But he, he questions. He hears this and he says, how is this not possible for the whole world? If his spirit comes in and provides this love, why doesn't the world take it? Why isn't the entire world transformed? Why is there still hatred? Why is there still strife? Why do you still have to leave? Why is there lack of love or even active hatred against God? Why must we still live in this world that so hates God and all things related to God? When will this become untrue? When will the world not hate God? So verses 23 to 24, Jesus' response. The love of God has been manifest among you, allowing and making possible your love for him and for others. The same cannot be said of the world. And we hear this. This is, this is kind of further development of John 1. And he came to his own, and his own did not accept him. His own did not take him. And so he expands on that. So because you and I are sojourners and exiles in this world, a world with active hatred against God, it can be really difficult to witness. Because you're looking at it like, how are they going to respond to what I said? Are they not going to like me? Am I still going to have a friendship? Am I still going to have a relationship with them? We witness according to verses 25 to 26, according to the witness of the Spirit, who dwells in you. He comforts you. He empowers you. He comforts you, not just to say that this oversees everything else, but I comfort you in the middle of, of tribulation. I comfort you in the middle of trials. I comfort you in the middle of the world hating me and then hating you. I give you the words. I give you the comfort. And I also tell you, when you don't do it, you're still in God's love. You're still loved by God. When everything looks as if the gospel will not win out, he continues to comfort you in saying it will. I promise it will. He empowers your witness in the world and he empowers you to endure the same. He doesn't, at least not yet, cause strife and affliction to cease. But he empowers you through that. He says, don't look at external circumstances. It's going, it's going to be hard. And this is why. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Peace not as the world promises. Because the world promises peace like this. If you vote for this or that person, peace will come through the land. If you buy this product, if you use this product, you will be at peace. You'll feel like I've got all the stuff in the world. Everyone's going to like me now. Peace if you know the right people. Have the right connections. Peace. I heard this. I've been hearing this on a podcast more recently. 
peace from this vacation that will never leave you. Peace if you have this kind of job. Peace if you marry this kind of woman or man. Peace if you join this group. Temporary, fleeting, vapid peace. But the peace Jesus offers is peace with the Father. Peace in the midst of the strife of this world. Peace from the Father whom you had no peace with before. That's way worse than not having peace with the world. Knowing that ultimate peace has been rendered, that the world is careening towards it, whether they know it or not. And this peace only comes when Jesus leaves. That's the only way you get it. When Jesus ascends. That's why his absence is such good news. Because it means he won. It means he ascended. It means he resurrected and his body is no longer there. That's why absence is good news. If he's gone, that means he will take you. He will bring you. If he's gone, it means the work he rendered is yours. Because he brings back down the spirit. The ruler of this world, then, has no claim over you. Can never have claim over you. It says it has claim over you, but it's wrong. Because it never had claim over you. Because it never had claim over him. And you are treated with him and in him. And for those in Christ, your peace comes from his absence, but your peace will one day be manifested by his presence. He'll tell him, Thank you for going. Thank you for coming back. Let's pray. Lord, this is the good news. It's counter everything that we think that your son's physical presence is the best news we could possibly hear. Because it means he's been raised, his work has been rendered just, he's been vindicated, and we've been vindicated with him. We have the presence of the Spirit to confirm this with us and say he's coming back, and he's coming back to bring us with him. Lord, may this be good news for us. Good news in the midst of all other absence, all other strife, that this is the only good absence. This is the only thing that promises us eternal presence. We thank you for your word. We praise you because of it. All of this in your son's name. Amen.